Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And this week, we're joined by a very, very special guest. And listeners, you'll soon notice that Anna is the only one asking questions in this interview. Um, no, don't worry. She's not making a weird passive-aggressive power grab. Um, I have been sick for a few days now. Uh, not, not COVID. Don't have COVID but I am sick. So Anna went ahead and did this interview solo. Um, it was especially serendipitous because our guest happens to be Anna's partner, uh, Dr. Naomi Martitius. That's right. It's a two doctor household. We're working on getting those cats into grad school. Um, but while you're here, while I have you, before I go back to bed, um, I want to remind everyone that my birthday is coming up. It's very important. Um, and this year, in lieu of a party or gifts or flowers or whatever, um, I'm asking people to contribute to a fundraiser that I set up in support of Holler Health Justice, uh, which is a West Virginia-based organization dedicated to racial, economic, and reproductive justice, uh, which um, we could definitely use some more of right now. Um, they're really amazing. Um, they do... Um, not only do they uh, provide reproductive health care, like funding abortions, but they also provide um, harm reduction um, more, more generally um, through mutual aid. And they will not only cover like any medical costs, but they also um, hook people up with gas money or um, a hotel stay or like if they need like food while they're while they're seeking treatment um it's really their work is always really crucial and really um it's really really important especially given um their their status as uh, they are unionized they are black and indigenous poc led they are queer led um it's a really amazing organization that um takes understands the um intersectionality of of these, these needs of, of racial, economic, and reproductive um, justice needs. Um, and so if that sounds compelling to you and you can spare the funds, um, my fundraiser link is uh, found at http secure.actblue.com slash donate slash HBD Amber. Um, so that's secure.actblue.com slash donate slash HBD Amber. Um, and you can learn more about Holler Health Justice and their work at hollerhealthjustice.org. Um, and also, um, sort of in that same vein, um, if you are, if you have, if you have donated to um, an abortion fund or a mutual aid fund in your own community or a community that um, you 
you otherwise have have uh, recognized is in particular need right now. Um, and so you're kind of spent on that. Uh, just let us know. Let me know. Um, on like, give me a shout on on social media. Um, I'm Amber Dextrous on Twitter. Um, I would love to hear that, and it would it would mean so much to me. Um, so that's enough from me from my sick bed. I'm gonna hand it back over to the doctors, uh, Anna and Naomi. Thank you, Amber. So. With us today, we have Dr. Naomi Martitius, a paleolithic archaeologist specializing in the study of tools made from animal materials like bone and antler. She uses different types of microscopes to look really, 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 really closely at the surface textures of these objects to figure out how they were made and used by early human groups. So thank you for joining us, Naomi. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> here in your house. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a pleasure to be on the podcast, finally. Yeah, four years in. I <laughs> um, as if that's like the waiting time. Uh, so our first question, how did you get into anthropology and what has your trajectory been up to this point? I guess I would say I've always had a general interest in our human past. Um, and who knows where that comes from? But um, maybe um, my like family, like my father, he was always interested in history. So um, I think that was just a general interest that maybe I inherited or learned from him. But then um, as I got older, this um, interest didn't go away. I, I had um, a completely different plan for myself when I was younger and in my early 20s. Um, I was actually trying to be a ballet dancer, and I actually did dance for a little while. Yeah, you're pretty, you say trying to be. <laughs> you were a, a professional ballet dancer. Yeah, for a little while, Yeah. <laughs> Um, anyway, <laughs> um, I guess the story I always like to tell about my transition to academia is, um, sitting in, um, my ballet studio in San Francisco, um, in between rehearsals, you know, waiting for my turn to rehearse whatever dance I was doing at the time. And I'd be over there stretching with a National Geographic magazine um, and just reading whatever I could really about um, like the most recent discoveries at that time. So, um, so yeah, even though I was like doing something completely different um, in the arts, I still um, had this interest in um, human history. And so one day I just finally decided to make that transition, um, started going to the local community college, um, eventually transferred to UC Davis um, to complete my um, undergrad um, degree. And then, <clears throat> well, at that point, I would say I was I was interested in both archaeology and in um, like ancient DNA analyses. And so for my, um, my honors project um, during undergrad, I actually worked in an ancient DNA lab and analyzed some DNA 
of um, ancient Native Americans from the Bay Area. But from that experience, I realized that um, I didn't want my career to be pipetting a bunch of clear liquid around in a lab. <laughs> Because it was extremely tedious. I mean, no shade to anyone who does that and loves it. <laughs> no, I know. Better better you than us, I, can, I think. <laughs> and I'm sure, so so when you actually do get, so, so part, part of it was that, um, like, half the time I would be doing that, um, I wouldn't get any results. Um, and mm. so, so when I would get some results, of course, that was exciting and interesting. But, like, just, like, going through the whole process and not finding anything, it just like, you know, <laughs> dragged on me. <laughs> so. oh, I want to win. <laughs> also at the same time during my undergrad career, I had taken like a human osteology course and I had also taken a zooarchaeology course and um, realized that bones are super interesting. I think... I think, Anna, you can relate to that. Oh, yeah. Love them. <laughs> Love bones. No, I really oh, do. You even have a t-shirt. Yeah, check out our that. merch store at shop.spreadshirt.com slash the hyphen dirt hyphen shirt hyphen store. Oh, wow. That's a lot of hyphen. I know. I didn't, I didn't pick it. <laughs> um, but anyway, yeah, we have an I Love Bones <laughs> design, and that that plug was not scripted. So back to, back to the interview. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, yeah, I was just, um, yeah, I got really interested into bones and um, like all the, well, you know, all the similarities between different animals and then all the little differences between animals, including humans. And the first time I went into the field, um, or actually the first couple times I went into the field, um, I was often the only person on site that could identify any sort of, um, you know, skeletal elements that showed up. Um, so, Which is a good skill for an archaeologist in general to have, to know, like, yes, that's a bone, and is it human? Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> so um, I always got called over to look at it, uh, to see if, you know, I could tell anything about it. Um, and so that was... Um, that was very encouraging to me. Um, and and then eventually um, I started grad school. I stayed at UC Davis for grad school. Um, and I started that um, program with the intention of um, studying human subsistence in the past. So that's like what ancient people were eating. Um, and, you know, typically at archaeological sites, we find a lot of fossil remains. So, um, so yes, we know that they were, uh, ancient humans were eating a lot of animals in the past. So, so that's kind of where I was going to, um, thinking about comparing maybe different sites, um, and, um, different subsistence patterns of different groups, maybe in different time periods, different places, but um, my plans changed and I got, um, well, I got interested in bone modifications. So it's just, it's kind of interesting, like how it works in um, archaeology, probably in any field that you go to study. You just, um, 
seem to get more and more focused on one particular thing. And then you become this like very, very specific niche expert. So my trajectory ended up with um, the study of bone modifications. And in particular, the study of anthropogenically modified bones. So how were humans modifying bones, um, often turning them into tools, but people could have been modifying bones and other um, hard animal materials um, in a variety of ways. What are, can, can you just break down what are hard animal materials, like some examples? So, yeah, I mean, in general, um, broadly, a hard animal material would be like a bone, but it could also be some other materials in the body, like um, their teeth. Um, and if um, animals have ivory, like mammoths do, or elephants. Yep. Sure. Um, so that is a hard animal material. Great. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I don't want to just, um, generalize saying bone, um, because it's not, you know, animal hard parts, animal hard parts. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, uh, but also I am also very interested in how ancient humans used animal soft parts. <laughs> Sorry, is that something weird to say? No, no I, I mean, it's the natural follow-up to hard parts. If they have hard parts, they must have soft parts. The meaty bits. But but those things are, um, they don't preserve as well in the archaeological record. But there are um, indirect proxies to get at some of those things. And often those indirect processes are... Um, traces left on these hard animal material remains. So we, we can learn a lot from these, um, well, I'll say bones generally. Yeah. Yeah. Bones is a stand in here for things like antler, ivory, teeth, etc. Okay. So we've gotten all the way to your undergraduate career from an initial uh, hard left from ballet into, into academia. During your undergraduate studies at UC Davis, you made a discovery that basically rewrote a specific aspect of Neanderthal behavior. So Neanderthals, we know they used bone. We have evidence that they that they used bone as tools in the Middle Paleolithic, which is roughly mm, 300,000 years ago to maybe 40,000 years ago in Europe and and uh sort of western Eurasia. And so the thing is that up until a point in your career, Naomi, um, it was generally thought that, Na that was generally thought that Naomi's, yep. <laughs> oh, good morning. Uh, it was generally thought that Neanderthals sort of used bone uh, expediently, like they would grab something and use it, but they weren't shaping something into a tool that they would use over and over again. Exactly. So Neanderthals, um, like, like a very, very common bone tool type in middle Paleolithic sites or something that we call retouchers. So they're, um, or if you work in France, retouchoir. We, so, um, so yes. So typically they are pieces of long bone shaft, Shafts, so like, so when I say long bones, I mean like leg bones. Yeah, limb. Limb bones. Um, so, so those are the more robust bones in the body. So 
um, Neanderthals were fragmenting these bones all the time to get at the marrow inside. Delicious. Um, yes, delicious marrow. Um, <laughs> but then, so once they fragmented these bones, they had all these, um, you know, pieces of like chunks of bone all over their ar- archaeological sites. So well, they weren't archaeological sites yet. They didn't. Oh yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Occupation all, yeah, sites. all over their houses. Like, all over their houses. I say house, but, but like, <laughs> I think it was, it must've been kind of messy and probably pretty stinky. Probably. <laughs> but anyway, so, so with all these bones that are laying around, um, these Neanderthals um, would have picked up some of these pieces and then used them to then nap their stone tools. So they're called retouchers because they have these um, like little peck marks on the surface of um, the bone. And and those specific peck marks um, are really reflective of um, um, what they were used for. Yeah, so it was like to, to sort of resharpen a stone tool. So if you had a, a scraper that was kind of dull, you'd take a grab a bone and go ding, 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 and, and knock some flakes off, and you'd have a nice sharp tool again. Exactly. And so the thing about this type of tool, and, and then there are other, I won't get into explaining all of it right now, but there are other types of um, what Anna called previously um, expedient bone tools um, during the Middle Paleolithic, but that's that's typically what they were. So just um, used bone fragments that weren't really modified. They, they might be modified um, minimally, possibly using um, techniques that um, they were already using on lithics. Yeah, but there wasn't any kind of standardized, like, this is how you make a tool. Exactly. There was... Um, not really much of that going on at all in the middle Paleolithic. So during um, an internship at UC Davis, when I was um, working with Teresa Steele, um, she had part of um, an assemblage from a site called Abri Peroni, uh-huh. which is in France. <laughs> Can you tell? <laughs> um, so she had part of that assemblage, back at UC Davis and as an undergrad, right? Not much experience at all. I was given the opportunity to search through all these tiny little bone fragments. So not even the bigger pieces of bone at the site, like the really, really small pieces, like two centimeters or less. Um, And like, for me, that was like the greatest thing ever that I was actually working on bone material from a Neanderthal site just amazing like I didn't really even care what was in it just like the fact that these bones were what 50,000 years old and you know I was getting to sort through them yeah it turns out though so Teresa had asked me to look for something in particular while I was sorting through it so I was sorting through it like not just looking for um, specific things I you know she asked me to count them and weigh them so to do a lot of other tedious work but you know no pipettes this time. No pipettes. <laughs> no, but but basic data collection. Basic data collection, right. Um, so, but she had asked me to look for something in particular um, because something, so, so the thing that she had asked me to look for um, was, well, I'll just say it. So, so we called them um, l'histoire, um, which is a French typological term that means smoother. 
Um, and so this type of tool is um, really common in upper Paleolithic sites. So that's the Homo sapiens, not Neanderthal. So there's this um, tool that these upper Paleolithic Homo sapiens use quite a bit um, called lissoir, um, and typically thought to be used in hide working. Yeah, so like it's called a, a smoother, so... When you cure an animal's hide, once it's cured, it's it's all stiff. And so if you want to wear it, it would be like trying to wear, I don't know, a graham cracker as clothing. <laughs> but but oh, instead, uh, yeah, well, it was the first like hard square thing I thought of. Um, but graham crackers are very crumbly. Okay, well, we'll revise that later. Um, <laughs> but it's it's very stiff. And so to turn it into like wearable, workable hide to make a nice whatever, nice waistcoat out of, um, you need to smooth it. You need to like repeatedly work it and kind of press into it. And so this was a type of tool that's thought to have been used for that. So it, it has a specific shape, right? Yeah. And that's what so, you were looking for? So ty- typically these um, type of artifacts are um, made on an elongated bone, um, often on ribs, but they don't have to be made on ribs. Um, and they have this, um, rounded working end, um, often the word ogival is used (laughs) to describe it. So ogival is like a type of, um, doorway. Yeah. Yeah. Let's work. Listeners, here's your assignment for this week. Work ogival into your casual conversation. So picture like a, a butter knife or maybe, um, like an offset spatula for spreading cake frosting. Or, you know, a paint spatula. It's like a rounded, almost oval tip. Right. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So, so at this site, Abri Pyrene, there had already been one um, fragment with this shape um, that had been found there. And so, so it wasn't the whole tool. It wasn't this really elongated um, tool. It was just the very little tip, tip of it that was broken but it had this, um, like, perfectly round, like, perfectly um, ogival shape. So so the ogival part um, um, makes it, so it's rounded, then it has this little, like, point at the end. Yeah. <laughs> so the one that was already found, like, really had that perfect shape. Which doesn't occur naturally on the kind of bone that it's on. It's not like this was a, a rounded, like, a funny-shaped bone. Like it had been changed. The shape right, had been changed. Right. Yeah, it had been changed. Yeah. Definitely. Um, so, yeah. So then, so I was asked to look for um, that shape. And so when I was looking through um, this, these small little fragments of bone, I found one. And, you know, I hadn't really, Teresa hadn't explained to me, like, exactly the significance of this. So, like, it was a Friday and... Um, I, I, I might not have even told her till Monday um, or maybe I emailed her and, you know, she doesn't like tend to check her emails over the weekend. Good. So, yeah, <laughs> I respect that. Um, and so like nothing really happened until the following week. And then so when the, we were both in there together and I showed her it um, and she was she was just um, so excited I just remember, um, like, how um, ecstatic she was that I found this thing. And she ended up emailing her colleagues right away. I think she even called um, on the phone one of her colleagues in Germany. Um, So why was this such a big deal? 
Like, why did she get so excited over a tiny ogival nubbin? Because um, at this particular point in um, human prehistory, um, specifically with Neanderthals, they seem to only be using um, expedient bone tools that weren't really um, modified before use. And the thing about these um, lissoir smoothers is that they would have had to have been modified prior to use using specific techniques that are um, specifically conceived of for bone tools. So, so these techniques are like scraping, grinding, grooving. Oh, my dance moves. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Very different from my dance moves. Yeah. Well, (laughs) Um, so yeah, so, so so these type of techniques, um, you don't use those on lithic tools. Um, so you would only use these kind of techniques on something that's a little softer. So, so you could use the same, um, methods to modify like wood. Sure. Um, but there's also a problem like in the archeological record, not a lot of wood preserves. So it's totally, not at, not at 50,000 years plus. Yeah. Yeah. Bone tends to preserve much better than wood. And so if we had, um, various kinds of tools with, um, these specific traces, um, then we should be able to find them, um, in these middle Paleolithic sites, but we really, we really don't tend to find them very much at all. Um, but, but now, um, at a few sites, um, we've got these, um, smoothers or lissoirs. And so, so anyway, so after that, that find that I made in the lab, um, we ended up finding another one um, the following year during excavation, and that was a much more um, complete one. It wasn't complete, but it was a much larger fragment. Larger nubbin. Right in situ, in sight, and that was super exciting being on site. Um, and, you know, and I got called over to examine it. And, <laughs> oh, yeah, that was really cool. Yeah, and so the, the big thing is that Neanderthals were previously thought not to make this kind of tool at all. And and it's the kind of thing that involves forethought and planning. You have to have a task in mind and you say, I want a tool to work this hide. It needs to look like this picture that I have in my mind. And so I'm going to take a piece of bone and alter it so it matches this picture I have in my mind and then use it for the purpose that I need to use it for. So that's a big deal in terms of understanding Neanderthal sort of behavior and cognition um, and really kind of bumping Neanderthals up in terms of their, how their behavior is compared to Homo sapiens, right? Over the last 50, 100 years even, let's say, um, how anthropologists tend to think about Neanderthals has shifted, um, like with, you know, so many, um, like because of contemporary things happening in the world or just because of, um, various discoveries. Um, so, you know, sometimes, um, anthropologists were, um, thinking Neanderthals were just like Homo sapiens. And then other times they were thought of as these brutes who- Big hairy dum-dums. Yeah. (laughs) Who didn't know- much anything at all. Um, and so, um, 
So yeah, so so just like as a science, there's been this evolution of how we think about um, these ancient people um, who were living in Europe during the Middle Paleolithic. Yeah, so it was another piece of evidence um, indicating that Neanderthals were doing really, really similar things to what Homo sapiens were doing. Um, and so not very different from Homo sapiens um, during similar time periods. Yeah. So once you got into the study of the Paleolithic, uh, once you sort of started your, your graduate studies, you started focusing, and I pun intended, you found yourself focusing on a really like niche aspect of Stone Age life. And, and so that specifically led you to teaching yourself a whole new set of skills. And so I want to kind of talk about that a little bit because I want our listeners to sort of hear this sort of version of what it means to be an expert in archaeology. Because a lot of times I think people have the idea of of an expert in a certain part of the field. And that kind of gets solidified or, or almost, almost fossilized even um, like, Oh, you are an expert in zooarchaeology. That means you identify animal bones and that's it. You don't, once you're established as an expert, you don't necessarily branch out, but that's not true. You can always learn new skills. And that is in fact what you did. So, so let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I would say in general, pr probably, in most fields of research and science, um, it's probably similar, but, but, you know, I'm not, uh, physicist. Yeah. Physicist or, you know, some other type of scientist. So, so I, you know, I don't know for sure, but, um, I would say at least in anthropology, um, and, you know, in archeology span and paleoanthropology, um, I think it's fairly common, um, to, continue to develop your skills, um, you know, once you get into grad school, after you get out of grad school, there are um, a lot of different questions in this type of research. And maybe the one skill that you have, like, just will not contribute to a particular question that you have. So then you have to learn um you have to figure out how to answer this particular question. And often that will require building new skills. Now, some, sometimes you can just um, go to a colleague and say, hey, can you do this for me? Because I have this particular question. And because they already have that skill. Right. They already have that skill. And so then you can like build lots of collaborative relationships that way. Um, and... Um, and that's great. But what if you don't want to talk to people? <laughs> what if you're like me and you don't typically like talking to people or wait four years to get on a podcast? Wow. <laughs> yeah. So so it's not entirely true because I do have a lot of colleagues that do a lot of work. It's not like I'm doing all of the work myself. But um and even in the various skills that I have learned, um, I often have had someone to at least start me learning um, a new skill. But I would say in general, when you get to this so-called like expert level, um, a lot of the learning um, that we do is on our own. And... Um, 
a lot of times because it's like developing methods that just haven't been used yet or are used in sort of a different part of the field and you're sort of adapting. I'm using your collectively, just like any, any researcher, um, you know, modifying existing methods to, to do different things. And that's, that's what you've done. Yeah. Well, so one of the things I um, started developing during my dissertation was the use of 3D microscopic methods on bone surfaces. And so it's not like nobody had done that before. Um, there had been a couple different um, researchers that have tried to use that method, but it's a, it's a really, really common method in some other fields. So like in um, microware studies on teeth to try to figure out what ancient animals or what ancient humans were eating. So, so, um, so well, you can do it qualitatively, um, looking at the traces under a microscope and then um, interpreting, interpreting um, what these traces um, were caused by and therefore what like the animal was eating. Um, but then in more recent years, the, um, well, we call it 3D surface texture um, analysis. Um, so when you have these little tiny 3D models, then you can actually measure things at that scale. Um, and then you can quantitatively distinguish um, the different traces. Yeah, so the difference between qualitative and quantitative is really important here because qualitative means that it's someone who, who knows what they're doing, um, looking at something, so let's say uh, wear on teeth, and identifying it just based on their own experience. And that can be really problematic because it's really subjective. It depends on what one person interprets. And so is that one person going to interpret everything there is to interpret in the archaeological record? No, probably not. Also, what if that person dies? So having a quantitative way, having a way to assign values to different changes in, in bone or in whatever material you're studying um, is a way to get around that is a way to make sure that if two different people are studying different artifacts, you can still compare the two um, without necessarily having that human subjectivity. Yeah, that's right. And then the other important thing about it is that, um, so, so there's always going to be ambiguous traces that are difficult for like a traditional um, qualitative microware analyst to um, interpret, you know, it, it's like, it's a, it's a scratch mark. Okay. It's a scratch mark. It kind of <laughs> looks like this thing. It kind of looks like this other thing. What category do I put it in? Sometimes they might decide to put it in a category, even though they don't feel very confident about it. And then other people might say, well, I don't know. We'll just say, and then you have a decades long argument about a scratch mark. That's true. You might. Yeah. <laughs> so then, so with these quantitative methods, then with these more ambiguous marks, um, you can use statistics and say, well, you know, maybe there's like a 60% probability that it's this type of mark over here on the left. And, you know, only like a 30% probability of it being the other mark. Yeah. So you can do all kinds of stuff with statistics to sort of filter out that noise. Yeah, exactly. So you, you might not still know 
exactly what it is, but at least you've got um, numbers helping you yeah. to, <laughs> to make these interpretations. Yeah. So basically what you do with microscopes is that you zoom in on tiny, 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 like really like millimeter, square millimeter sized or smaller, or is it micrometer even? Yeah. So yeah, when you're, um, when you're smaller than a millimeter, you're in the micrometer range. Yes. So small. Um, so you use a very powerful microscope to zoom in and basically take scans of the surfaces of bone tools or, or modified bone at that level of magnification. And then, and then you run it through a computer and and do some beep boops. Exactly. (laughs) Is that... Is that, is that right? Exactly. So, so I've, I've um, the microscopes I've tended to use um, have been called, they're called confocal microscopes. Um, and so then, yes, um, once I get these scans using a confocal microscope, I then put it through um, a software um, called Mountains Map. And sure, you know it, you love it. <laughs> And, um, yes, and then I can um, get a whole lot of different measurements from all sorts of different um, features of these tiny microtopographic structures of the bone surfaces. Yeah, it looks like, yeah, it looks like the surface of the moon, like I'm just thinking about your scans. Like it looks like the surface of the moon. If someone had been like dirt bike, ra- dirt bike racing on it. <laughs> it could be. Well, I mean, it, it totally depends on yeah, what the surface is, right? Yeah. So yeah, if there are a bunch of striations. I'm from, just trying to do some theater of the mind here. So if the striations are from like manufacturing the bone or maybe even using the bone on some materials, mm-hmm. um, then yeah. So maybe it'll look like <laughs> dirt. Dirt biking on the moon. On the moon. And then the other thing, often at the microscopic scale, you get all these little tiny pores on the bone. So I think that's why the moon. Image oh yeah, came it does have it does have craters. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It does sort of look like it's some sort of alien landscape. But but the the ultimate goal is, and and maybe you're not quite there yet, but the ultimate goal is to be able to kind of categorize these these markings and and be able to link them to certain processes right so like oh that's what it looks like when bone rubs on leather for a really long time or like that's what it looks like when it's used on bark etc we can definitely distinguish different material wear and manufacturing wear traces um, with this method Hmm. Um, that's that's not an issue the issue is with what we know on these um modern experimental bones um can that be like accurately applied to the archaeological bones because um you know bones from archaeological site like you know and and we were talking earlier about 50,000 year old bones right so or older or older um these bones have gone through a lot of changes in those 50,000 years. Um, and so when we're measuring things at that microscopic scale, um, any tiny little change in the surface is going to be reflected in the measurements gonna, of these, yeah. these thir- 3D surface texture measurements. Okay, so you have to kind of, what what you're working on is kind of parsing out, is this something that, is on the surface because of how the tool was made or is it because the tool was underground for 15,000 years and saw some stuff? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's one way to put it. (laughs) Okay. But no, but, but, but even like, so, 
So qualitatively, I might be able to say, you know, looking at these scans, um, like that is definitely a human made mark, right? So I can say that. Maybe I don't exactly know what made that mark, but then on top of that mark, there are gonna be these other um, modifications that have occurred over 50,000 years or more, whatever it is. Yeah. And so then these taphonomic modifications are gonna alter the, um, the measurements of this like human-made trace that's already there. Cool. And so that trace might not be um, um, comparable to what I can produce experimentally. Right, and we'll get into the experimental stuff in just a little bit, but first we're gonna take an ad break and we'll be right back. It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K-U-L-T-U-R-O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's culturomedia.com for all our live events and more. Culturomedia.com. Chris Webster here, founder of the APN and host of several shows. I just wanted to let you know about our membership program and what it offers. Members of the APN get, for just $7.99 a month or cheaper if you pay for the year, ad-free episodes so you don't have to listen to me on the breaks, membership in our Slack team so you can continue the conversation with hosts and other members, and exclusive access to any of our live event recordings. Live events are always free, but you only get to watch the recording if you're a member. So head over to arcpodnet.com slash members for more info and to become a member. Our podcasts are always free, but this is just a little something extra and it really helps us out. That's arcpodnet.com slash members. This is Chris Webster with the APN. I'm also a project manager for several industries. I wouldn't be able to keep on track with really anything if it wasn't for Motion. With Motion, I just say what I need to do, how long I think it will take, what sort of priority I think it has, and Motion builds my day for me. It'll even build in breaks because, let's be honest, it's hard to remember to stop to eat lunch sometimes. So head over to arcpodnet.com motion for a free trial and a discount if you sign up. You'll kick back a small amount to the APN if you do. That's arcpodnet.com motion. And Dr. Naomi Martitius is still here. This is very timely because this paper just came out yesterday, but you've just had a paper published about bone tools and ornaments at the site of Bacchokiro in what is today Bulgaria. So we're moving forward a little bit in time now. We were talking about Neanderthals, but this is, this is Homo sapiens. So can you tell us a bit more about the site and the artifacts that you studied and why they are so nifty? <laughs> nifty. I like that. Yeah, they're nifty. Um, so, so yeah, like you said, we're moving forward in time, but really not that much. Um, just a few thousand years forward in time. So, so this is during a time period when Neanderthals were still in Europe. Um, and so this is um, when, you know, some of the first Homo sapiens had um, just started moving into Europe um, we, we already know because of, um, 
like ancient DNA, even, you know, well, we know because of modern DNA analyses and ancient DNA analyses that um, many people in the world have um, Neanderthal DNA. Yeah, shout out to the people with pipettes. (laughs) That's going to keep coming back now, huh? (laughs) Um, so, So there were human remains at this cave. Um, dating to about 45,000 years ago. And these humans at that time already had Neanderthal ancestors about six generations back. Yeah, so somebody's great, 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 great grandma was a Neanderthal. Or grandpa. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if they know. No, I I wasn't I I wasn't trying to suggest that that was known, but but yeah, so there there had already been clearly encounters between humans, Homo sapiens, and and Neanderthals at this point. Otherwise, how'd that DNA get in there? <laughs> exactly. That's, I'm a scientist, <laughs> and so. And so, yes, so there had already been encounters with um, Neanderthals and it, probably multiple encounters in various different places. But so at this period in time, there were still quite a few Neanderthals still living in Europe, um, probably mostly in Western Europe at mm, that point. Yeah, um, around the Iberian Peninsula. I, were, I mean, even in France, yeah. too. And um Maybe Italy. I think that's still up in the air. Um, but yeah, so so Homo sapiens moving moving in through um, like Southwest Asia and into Eastern Europe. You know, first in the Balkans and then moving up into Central Europe um, and just um, coming on through, interacting with Neanderthals and replacing them. You know, interacting. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so anyway, so so this is this is this time period that we're in. So Bachikiro Cave in Bulgaria is a really really cool site. Um, it was initially excavated back in the 30s, then again in the 70s. Yeah, because uh, World War II got in the way. Oopsies. <laughs> and then um, most recently, starting in 2015, with the Max Planck Institute of Evolutionary Anthropology and the Bulgarian National Academy of Sciences. Ah. And so this joint effort to re-excavate Bachikiro Cave um, has resulted in some, like, like, quite a lot of information. So I already mentioned these human remains that were found. um, And now there have been multiple other papers that have come out on the site. Um, And so, so a lot of artifacts, a lot of stone artifacts have been excavated. A lot of bones now have been excavated. And what I had the privilege of studying were the modified bones, um, as well as um, modified teeth that um, came out of this site. And from these, um, did I say the term initial upper paleolithic before? You did not. So yeah, so so we call them um, initial upper paleolithic technologies, not just because um, chronologically they are like the first upper paleolithic people, but the term initial upper paleolithic is really based on um, lithic technology. So, and I'm not a lithics person, so I might not describe this um, 
Sorry well. to all the lithic experts out there. <laughs> Cover your ears and go la 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 for about 15 seconds. <laughs> so it seems like it's like some type of um, level wah um, technology that they're using, but then with... Um, so that's a flake technology. They're knocking off flakes and then sharpening those flakes into tools as opposed to shaping a core into something. Well, you have to shape the core first. Yeah. And strike and off then, these flakes. Yeah. For more on that, listen to our Lithics episode with Dr. Danielle McDonald. <laughs> but anyway, but then they're also um, alongside this um, like level watt technology, they've got these um, like upper Paleolithic blades. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like this interesting um, combination of things at this time. So, so we've got these, um, this Lithic technology um, at the site in association with all of these modified um, faunal remains that have been turned into tools um, or into ornaments. Yeah, let's talk about the ornaments. Can we talk about those? Yeah, I guess those are the more exciting things, I mean, right? <laughs> we, well, because we've already really covered bone tools to some extent. And uh, yeah, the, the ornaments are cool. Yeah, so um, there are... 30 fragments, I believe. Three of, three of them um, are likely um, waste fragments. Hmm. Um, so I think so. I think 27 then actual pendants. Um, so 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 when I say pendants, um, typically when um, an animal tooth um, is either perforated or modified in a way um, so that it could be suspended, um, they're typically called pendants yeah and it's and it's like the tooth root that's altered for that right usually so you've got the tooth and then like kind of a cone of um, bony material that keeps the you know when the animal's alive it keeps the tooth in the jaw but if you take it out and you put a hole through it and you got yourself a little little bead a hangy pendant bead yeah exactly (laughs) so yeah so we've got um about 27 um most of them are perforated um, in somehow, in some way. Um, But then a few of them have um, like a groove around the root. So a really cool thing about this assemblage is that the majority of them are made on carnivore teeth. Um, What kind of, what what species? Yes, all but one is um, from cave bear. And the the other one is a wolf tooth. I mean, come on, that's... It's pretty rad. It's pretty rad. <laughs> and some of them are like really large. So there's even like cave bear molars. We write with these. Which is, you know, it's not the most imposing tooth in a cave bear's mouth, but it's just like Very really large. big and chonky. Big and chonky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah. So, I mean, I mentioned the molars. So, so they're using um, like almost every single tooth in the mouth of these cave bears. Um, so yeah, the incisors, premolars, molars. I didn't find any um, canines in this particular assemblage, but um. so someone either killed a bear or found a bear skull with teeth and went, "Great, I will harvest these." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, um, I'm gonna argue that a lot of these bears were killed. There's a lot. Quite a few um, bare bone remains um, at Bachikiro Cave. Um, and so 
It makes perfect sense because when humans weren't there, cave bears were using um, the cave as their home. And so, so they're um, these um, little cave bear nests <laughs> that we find in the cave. So the, the, so these cave bear were hibernating there. Um, so, uh, so they're easy marks. Yeah. So, Aww. you know, I, I don't know if there's a, there's not a good way to prove this, um, I mean, if we look at um, the skeletal parts represented um, of the cave pair and, and compare that to um, like the herbivores at the site who were not hunted in the caves, right? They would have been hunted far away <laughs> so, and then brought back to the cave. There's no cave bison? <laughs> there are no cave bison that we know of yet. Not yet. Well, I gave the cave paintings cave okay sure (laughs) anyway so so yeah i mean if you look at the the skeletal parts represented um they are quite different so with the herbivores um you only get certain types of bones at the site and with the um cave bear you get most of their bones represented at the site So they probably died there rather than either died yeah they either died in the site or they were hunted around the site Close by. Because uh, it turns out cave bear, heavy. Hard to drag oh, home. yeah. They were big. <laughs> but, yeah. So, I, you know, I think it's... And also, I don't I don't think a human would probably want to take a cave bear, you know, face on. Oh, yeah. Just, like, out in the wild <laughs> as opposed to killing it when it's asleep. I, yeah. So, I think, I think it's probably pretty likely that a lot of them were killed while they were hibernating. And then their teeth were made independence. Yes, their teeth were made independence. Yeah. I mean, and not just that. And then their bones were made into tools. Their pelts were made into clothing or shelter. A little bearskin tent. Yeah. And so it seems like they were using um, a lot of different parts of these bears there at the site, which is really interesting to think about. Yeah. And so Bachikiro is especially cool because it's at this crossroads in time, time and space, put some echo on that. But so it's, it's this kind of gateway. Cause if you look at a map, uh, where Bulgaria is today is sort of a branching off point where you could go West and head into Europe. You could go East and head into deeper into sort of Eurasia and Western Asia. Um, and so these human populations are coming from Africa and they're living at Bachukiro doing doing human stuff at this really critical time when just human movement and I when I say human I mean all the different flavors that were around at the time was really popping off like people people were moving different places different groups of humans were interacting so seeing what Homo sapiens was doing at Bachukiro is this really cool little lens into this really like dynamic time it's very exciting. I like that word dynamic. Dynamic. It certainly was a dynamic time. Yeah. For for cave bears, for, for people. Oh. oh. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> a lot of your research, and, and now we get to the promised experimental stuff, and, and a specific question that I have. Uh, a lot of your research incorporates experimental archaeology. And so can you tell us a little bit about some of those projects? And specifically, can you explain to me why there are cow bones in our freezer and deer bones in our backyard shed? 
So that sounds like you might not like the fact that there are bones all over the house. I don't mind. It's just the stinky ones that I don't like. Yeah. So, so don't go into the shed. Yeah. Then. Nobody go in our shed. <laughs> the, the main projects I'm working on right now are um, experimental projects. Um, I'm, I'm, I mean, I've got, I definitely have some um, archaeological um, bone objects that I'm sitting to, but but really right now I'm focused on experimental work and developing um, methods. So I we I, we already um, talked about these 3D microscopic methods um, earlier. Um, so really I'm I'm trying to move that research forward. So you're just trying to lay foundation work. Yes, foundational method development. And, and a lot of what I'm doing right now is related to raw material properties. So um, so how bone do? Different bones um, in different parts of an animal's body um, or across different animals um, have different properties. Um, so some are going to be a little denser. Um, so like a deer femur is going to look different from a bison femur and probably a deer femur is going to look different from a deer other bone scapula. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite different And that. So, so at the microscopic scale, the bone surface will look different. Um, but also, um, how it reacts to sustained pressure under use, if it were used as a tool, um, will be different because bones are um, different. They're made differently <laughs> when an animal is growing. Yeah. <laughs> so, so yeah. So, so I'm, I'm combining um, raw material properties analyses with um, experimental work, seeing how these bones are worn. And then I'm measuring um, how they're worn at the microscopic scale um, to see if these differences um, are meaningful. And if they are meaningful, that has like all sorts of implications for trying to apply these methods to archaeological bones. Yeah. Okay, fine. We can keep the deer bones. <laughs> <sighs> there's also, I mean, full disclosure, there's also uh, a butcher's bone saw in the shed. That's why they call me Dr. Bonesaw. We do. We do, in fact, call her that. <laughs> uh, so thank you, Dr. Bonesaw, <laughs> for your work. Um, so, <laughs> so the time period you study is extremely long ago, as we've, as we've mentioned. Um, but the people were still people. So have you encountered anything or, or sort of like touched an object or worked with an object that during lab or field work that made you feel particularly connected with the original user or maker? As somebody who's been doing this for, you know, several years now, and I think it's pretty common for other people who do similar work. Um, it tends to become this, um, I don't know. What's the word? You're, you're like abstracted from it. Yeah, I guess abstracted from it. So like, you know, so I have this ancient bone that I'm studying, um, you know, and I've got these methods that I want to apply to it. So it just becomes like very clinical, I suppose. Sure. And that's academic rather than. Yeah. Um, so so sometimes it's um, a little more difficult to try to um, 
connect what I'm doing in the lab with this bone to, you know, somebody in the past. So I would say that, um, most of my experiences, um, like, so that weren't as academic, um, happened when, um, I was first starting out, um, as an archaeologist. When you were young and fresh and (laughs) not jaded. (laughs) Yeah. And so, um, so the second time I went into the field, um, I was in working in modern day Israel at a site called Kesson Cave. And yeah, so it's a really, really cool Paleolithic site dating to about 400 to 200,000 years ago. Yeah, massive span of occupation. Just like they were there forever. And this, um, it's definitely the oldest site that I've ever worked at. Um, And so that was really neat on its own. Still is. Um, Yep, still very jealous. (laughs) Um, and so, yeah, um, excavating there was super special and it seemed like for some reason, like I even moved around the site and excavated in a couple different areas and it seemed like I just kept finding some like cool things. (laughs) So I don't know, I've been a little lucky, I guess, you know, finding the the Lisoir. (laughs) You have the power of serendipity. It is true. Anyway, so... One particular stone artifact at Kesson Cave um, was actually a hand axe, um, and I found it. And so a hand axe is, um, for those of you that um, aren't familiar with Paleolithic artifacts, um, it's a very, very common artifact. Um, super distinctive shape. Super distinctive, kind of like a teardrop shape. Um, often, um, flaked on both sides, but then like the butt of it might not be (laughs) flaked. Yeah. So like it has like a grip sort of. Yeah. But, but I mean, there's a lot of variation in different time periods, but starting, um, likely with, um, like Homo ergaster, Homo erectus around what, like 1.8 million years ago. Mm -hmm. Anyway. So so it's a, it's a tool type that really stuck around. Yeah. <laughs> Very useful shape. Yeah. Anyway, so at um so so I don't remember exactly what the age deposits I was digging in. It was probably closer to four hundred thousand than two hundred thousand. But um but yeah, I found one of these hand axes and um How big was it? Like would it did it fit comfortably in your hand or would Yes, it was it was definitely a smaller one. Hmm. Um and I think that was that was also common at that time. Oh. Right. So, so they were, I, I think they were much, much bigger the later um, back you go in time and then they get more refined. If you start getting nanotechnology, like <laughs> nano hand axes, the size of a little <laughs> fingernail. No, that's not, don't, don't listen to me. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so I just remember like, like, so I had this thought in my mind, I am the first person to touch this tool in what, 400,000 years? Yeah, since the last time it was put down. Yeah, yeah. It was like almost a spiritual experience in a way, <laughs> which, um, yeah, it was super special. And now that I'm saying that, now I'm remembering some other times, like um, being in South Africa, mm-hmm. not even necessarily. Um, finding or picking up an artifact in particular, but just, um, where I've worked in South Africa 
in um, Namaqua land, which is um, on, on the western side, um, the lithic scatters, they're just all over the place. And they're not... Um, it doesn't... Um, it's, as you may guess, very dry there. And it doesn't... Sediment doesn't build up. So things that were dropped a million years ago are just still there. It's still Visible. There. You just, like, walk around and... Yes. Yeah. So I had some very, very um, special, like nearly spiritual experiences <laughs> walking around the landscape there in yeah. South Africa, just like like with these um, stone flakes, stone objects, like everywhere, um, where everywhere I went. And just like I remember thinking like how many people. Yeah over like you know millions of years at this point like an unfathomable span of time it's really hard for us to think of millions of years just like our human brains i think yeah so like i'm here (laughs) and how many people came before me like stood in this exact same spot and Um, dropped a tool and went nah i'll just leave it (laughs) yeah yeah it was very very special yeah i agree Um, So one more question and then we'll take another quick break and come back with our two classic final questions. But um, has your research changed the way you view the world around you, like on a really sort of everyday level? So like when you eat meat, do you think about Neanderthals eating meat? Or when you go hiking, do you think about how the landscape looked a zillion years ago? Things like that. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, and I can just... Um, recall what I just said about South Africa walking around. Yeah. Um, um, so, so I like to go hiking. I like to be out in nature. Um, and I remember when I was younger, I used to just sort of imagine being the first person who ever like walked in a certain area, like discovering this one little like niche of the world for the first time. But like, that's like, <laughs> now you know. <laughs> now we know. <laughs> there know, is like, no place on Earth that is new, except probably Antarctica, up to whenever people first got there. Right? Probably. And then they went, wow, it's cold here. But then there would have been um, all sorts of animals, you yeah. know, like millions and millions of years of ago before humans were even around that were there. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so so now, um, now I'm not like amazed thinking oh i'm the first person here but now i'm amazed thinking like how many people have been here before mm-hmm. and just like connected to this human past um but but then um answering the question about eating meat <laughs> also i would say i, I yeah I, I had a completely different um relationship with meat before i mean i've always been a meat eater um, so not like you're specifically on a carnivore diet, just that you are not a vegetarian. Yes. I'm <laughs> I'd not. like to establish that. I'm an omnivore. Yeah. Um, but I was one of these people that was like very uncomfortable with the idea of eating, um, what used to be a live animal. And I really, really didn't like, um, like eating directly off of a bone, um, like for some reason it just, um, I don't know. Yeah, it really did. Um, and, um, but yeah, so as I went on in my studies, um, 
it became more and more important to me. Um, to so, chew on bones. Yep. <laughs> well, <laughs> we not, not just that, <laughs> but to, to really think about where our meat is coming from. Right. I think it is super important for everyone who decides to buy any sort of meat from the supermarket or from a butcher um, to really, really try to connect to that. Like what what did this animal like go through? Um, like what was its life like before um, it was slaughtered and it ended up on my dinner plate? Yeah, I think that's. That's a, an important thing to think about. And it's it's really a challenging thing to think about, I think, for, for lots of people. Yeah, I think it really is. I mean, I, I have personal experience yeah. from before. Yeah. But but like but having this um, connection to how ancient people were eating and what they were doing with their bones is really, really allowed me to think about what is um, happening in our current society. And I do, I do think about it like probably every time I eat meat now. Um, And, um, you know, maybe some of the the decisions I um, make now regarding what type of um, meat I'll buy and eat. And yeah. And where, where it comes from eggs I'm getting, yeah. you know, though, those are, um, the way, the way I pick out my meat and my eggs, um, that has changed over time. Yeah. Okay. Let's take one more quick break and then the final questions. Hey, fans of APN Podcasts, we've got lots of designs over at our Tee Public store. Every purchase helps out the APN with a few cents back to us. Check out the high-quality t-shirts, stickers, phone cases, coffee mugs, and a lot more. There are lots of colors to choose from in most of those items, and Tee Public often runs 30% discounts. So check out the store at arcpodnet.com shop. That's arcpodnet.com shop, and click on the link. That is... Big question, um, really good question, and um, probably the most difficult question. <laughs> I don't know. The, the next one's hard, too. <laughs> um, well, um, I think for me, the best thing about anthropology is that um, it's a way to connect people, um, you know, current people today living in the world but also connecting people in the past. Um, and I think that's super important for us as humans living in this world where we're like, like every person on the world, like almost has the ability to be connected, like over the internet. We're right? almost too connected. I would argue as someone who is like just terminally too online, but, but are those connections as meaningful, right? Like if it's, like some Facebook friend you've never met versus feeling a connection to someone 50,000 years ago and, and sort of by extension sort of ancestrally all humanity. Exactly. That's what I was going to get to. You got there before Sorry. I did. Sorry. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So, so like right now in the world um, with all the, you know, the current, um, like borders of different countries and stuff. So, so it's really, really easy 
for so even though we are connected, you know, over the internet, it's also very easy to um, disconnect yourself from other people. I guess the other thing about the internet is you it's really easy to just connect with people that you are ha- feel like you're more connected to because of shared values or yeah, you whatever can find your your group or whatever. Um but anthropology gives us a way to connect to people who are seemingly quite different from us. Um, and, and so specifically, um, as a anthropo, as a, sorry, as an archeologist, um, and a paleoanthropologist studying people in the deep past, um, like it has become so much more clear to me, um, just how how very connected every single person on the planet today is with um, these ancient people that lived um, hundreds of thousands of years ago. Um, and even genetically, we can trace that um, back to Africa, right? And so that was another thing about being in Africa, just feeling like... You're in the, the birthplace the of birth- the species. Yeah, yeah. And like... What a special thing. It's a bit profound. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Did I great answer. Question? No, perfect. Yeah. Nailed it. Last question. If you could be present for any moment from human history or prehistory or any moment in the history of anthropology, what would you choose? Um, so that's actually an easy question oh, for me. <laughs> so, uh, so really, so how how we started this conversation um talking about this dynamic time in prehistory um you know roughly 50,000 40,000 years ago although that's a really um small time slice when we're talking about yeah, the paleolithic in the, in, the, in the scope of millions of Just years 10,000 sure. years oh yeah <laughs> a little drop in the bucket so for me i would want to be um, I, I would love to be like a little bird <laughs> on a branch watching um, when these different hominin groups living at the same time in the world um, came in contact with each other. So so earlier we were talking about when Homo sapiens were moving into Europe um, and met Neanderthals and interacted with Neanderthals in different ways. So <laughs> it wasn't just, you know, it wasn't just Homo sapiens and Neanderthals. There's also Denisovans that we didn't even talk about. Um, but even other groups um, that were around, like um, like um, Homo floresiensis. Floresiensis, I always say that wrong. Um, But anyway, so just like the, like, so during this um, dynamic period in the mid to late Pleistocene, when um, these different human groups um, came in contact with each other, like what, what was that like? Yeah, and maybe it wasn't even maybe it wasn't even special at all. Like maybe, maybe, maybe just like hey, yeah, it's just another group. <laughs> like maybe they smell they a little different, but all right. <laughs> yeah, but or or maybe it was like very very significant to them. Like I don't like these things are just they're unknown yeah, at this and, point. I don't know. Will we ever know them? I don't know. Uh, yeah, I don't know. And not just like the reactions of the people in the moment, 
but what what did that meeting of these two groups do? Um, how did it affect um, our own evolution and um, how like how did it affect how we became Homo sapiens? Right. So did these um, like so like were there ripple effects from these meetings? Yeah. Like I'm I'm yeah, there must have been. Right. Sure. Um, I mean, if, if the butterfly effect starring Ashton Kutcher has taught me anything. <laughs> a movie I have not seen. <laughs> so it didn't teach you anything. No, but, but I mean, but yeah, surely. I mean, had to. Right. Like they were these were groups of people who were maybe making tools a slightly different way and or yeah. or did they learn from each other yeah, did they did learn they? like did they cook their food differently did they cook their food at all right and and maybe and so what i like to think about is yeah may, maybe learning from each other during this time but also i think this interaction um led to the development of new technologies um, and in particular, um, we were earlier we were talking about um, pendants and ornaments. Mm-hmm. Like, I really, really think that um, um, these interactions led to this um, explosion in um, ornamentation. Ornament explosion. Well, that's something really interesting to think about. Because when you when you adorn yourself, like when you make something that the purpose of it is basically to decorate you to make you distinctive like that's something that hints at the need to make yourself distinctive so like where people differentiating themselves from like their their social group like i am the the big dog in this group so i have all the teeth strung from my shirt all right the all the bear teeth uh or is it just sort of like we're the group of people who wear the bear teeth. This is how we kind of like show our, our affiliation to one. So like the idea yeah, of, so of like showing that you our, belong to a group or. Yeah. So like our group wears the bear teeth, but then this other group over here, wears the fox teeth. Yeah. Like, is that like, is, is that like what uh, was it? Western Europe side story. <laughs> No, is that anything? <laughs> um, but yeah, and then even beyond um, thinking about the pendants, but like the use of pigments, like ochre and different things to to paint their body. Maybe even at that point, they were already tattooing themselves. Like I'm not sure. Yeah, I have no no way to know yet. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but but yeah, um, like so. This like very well uh, might have been the the genesis the genesis of um, human expression. I mean, I mean, it it, pro- it likely started a little earlier, but maybe for the same reason. This is like it really kicked off, though. Yeah, really kicked off around this time. This is the very first Claire's for <laughs> all of the accessories. No, please make make this stuff. Um, you started it. I did. Um, but that's going to do it for this episode. And Naomi, thank you so much for finally coming on the show. Well, thank you for finally having me. <laughs> it's 
been it's been a pleasure. Um, and listeners, we will be back in your ears with new content next week. Uh, we may be shifting our production schedule, so we might be coming out on a different day in the near future. But still, get your weekly content, and you can find that wherever you find your podcasts. And while you're finding your podcasts, maybe leave us a review and some stars in multiples of five, please, and thank you. And you can also find us on social media on Facebook, we're the Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast, and on Instagram, we're at the Dirt Pod. And all of that is all smushed together in a beautifully designed website, courtesy of Squarespace, uh, at thedirtpod.com. And you can find merch there, too. There's some new merch designs up. There are posters. Y'all, I figured out how to make posters, so it's on now. Um, and you can find supplementary notes and show notes for all of the episodes and resources for educators and so much more at thedirtpod.com. And thank you all so much for listening. We love you. Goodbye. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.